Hello, everybody. Welcome to White Line Fever Live. Um, uh, we do it more on the fly each episode. I think it's um, things are done more last minute uh, each time we do an episode, but um, hopefully that makes it more fun. Um, my guest this week is um, a sports academic. It's Hunter Fujak, who is, uh, who is based uh, at Deakin University in Melbourne. He's from Sydney, but, you know, we... We, did, we don't have any prejudices against people from outside the heartlands, unlike other outlets. Uh, welcome. Uh, by the way, everybody, um, support the show, patreon.com forward slash whitelinefever. And please, it, while you're watching or listening, look, look in the show notes because there's lots of links there um, uh, where you can find cool stuff. Okay, uh, Hunter, welcome to the show. How are you, mate? Thanks for having me. No, no worries. We just had, um, it's Thursday, so we normally do this after the Thursday NRL game. And I think it finished up 30-16 um, manly uh, at home, beaten by Canberra. They almost faded at the end. It, was, uh, it wasn't a great spectacle, but it was good to see uh, Canberra hang on. Mate, um, there's so many things we could discuss because it sounds like the, your uh, area of expertise um, cuts across um, a, a lot of things that would be of interest to the audience. But one thing that's quite topical at the moment, um, and I'm not going to keep you uh, here for too long, is um, the proposal for an independent commission to run the game in Britain. Uh, Shane Richardson, uh, uh, who we know from wherever you, whichever side of the world you're on, whether you're known through South and Penrith or whether you're known through uh, Gateshead and Hull here, um, is pre preparing a paper or has prepared a paper and is actually going to make it public on Monday, a paper about how this might work. Um, Hunter, what are your sort of preliminary thoughts on the idea of an independent commission in a British sport, which is, a, you know, the structures here are just completely different to, to the new world? Uh, what do you think? Yeah. I think it definitely has some merit uh, with many caveats involved. I think uh, obviously having come from Shane, who's seen it work successfully in the Australian context, uh, specifically in the AFL, from which NRL obviously kind of followed suit to adopt it themselves. I think one of the key things to keep in mind, though, is that it's not um, a fait accompli, that once you install an independent commission, it's just instantly going to solve your ills. Um, and in fact, you could argue that even within the NRL, uh, it hasn't necessarily been as successful as people may have hoped uh, relative to, you know, how it really raised the AFL to be the national sport uh, in, in this country in Australia. So it definitely has merit as it has pros, but it also still has to be implemented the right way. And just because something's called an independent commission doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you have to look at the fine print to really understand the terms by which that commission is governed. Yeah. Um, so, why do you think, what are the areas where you think the NRL commission has kind of, or the ARLC, sorry, has has kind of fallen a little bit short of what the AFL commission have done? Oh, I'll be, I'll be a little bit controversial up front because this is a conversation we have in the hallways of Deakin University all the time because we've got a lot of expertise in governance. And one of the really key uh, elements to ensure good governance is to have role clarity within your organisation in terms of who is in charge of what particular area of the organisation. Now, your chairman of your board has very specific functions and then your executive, so your Andrew Abdos, et cetera, in the NRL, also are supposed to have very clear uh, roles that they fulfil. What's happened in the NRL is that Peter Volandis has just basically taken over running the whole organisation entirely and he's kind of over he's overcrept in his um, role as chairman so he really shouldn't be in some senses the very public face of the game his role as chairman should really be to oversee the strategy in the background for the sport as a whole 
not to necessarily be a mouthpiece, not, ne not necessarily be the person who develops all the operational strategies. That's really something that's really sh should be the role of the executive. Uh, in the NRL at the moment, you might as well not have an executive because it's basically, it, from the outside looking in, it very much looks like it's run by Peter Volandis single-handedly. How he does that with another job, <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Um, but really, the role of the, the board and the chairman should be to oversee the strategic side and the operational side of an organisation should be left to an executive. And the NRL is very much creeping into misgovernance in terms of letting those two become overlap. And what are the what are the risks? What 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 are the what's the what's the end game if, if that's allowed to continue? Well, I think to some degree we can see um, those risks uh, come to fruition at the moment. So really, it's it's the executive that should come up with operational um, operational elements of the game. So, for example, even if we think about something like the six again controversy that we're facing at the moment, uh, you know, ideally that would have been developed through the process of trialing, testing. Um, uh, workshopping with individuals and stakeholders, but it was kind of a bit of a captain's pick in terms of the commission just kind of dropping it in on the game mid-season, which in itself is just not what you want to do. You, know, you don't want to be just changing the rules of a sport in the middle of a season or you know within a season. So I think I think the backlash now to some of the rule changes, the, the challenge the commission has is they're very much because those were introduced as captain's picks themselves. Uh, it makes it harder for them to sort of, I guess, have some admission of saying, you know, this isn't working, maybe we should change it, maybe we should adjust, because really they're, they're kind of wedded to it themselves, having made it without necessarily trialling it or testing it like uh, a conventional organisation probably would. Right, right, okay. And just moving across to the UK, you know, you've got quite a, an old-fashioned system here where the, the power is vested in the clubs a lot. Um, you know, you've got... Um, they do, I mean, the RFL does have a board with independent appointees. Super League has no independent appointees at all. It's just the clubs. Um, so how do you incentivise and, 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 and push reform through? Do you engage government? Is that how you do it? I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you get such a kind of uh, antiquated and, and institutionalised organisation to change? It can very, if we look, I guess, again, through a slightly Australian lens, we do see that government plays a huge role in this. You know, in the case of sports like uh, soccer in, in Australia, things like the Crawford Report was an independent commissioned, uh, an independent report commissioned by the government to basically review the organisational structure of soccer in Australia. And I think there are huge parallels to uh, the governance of soccer in Australia to rugby league in the UK. Um, and I use soccer here purely for the sake of avoiding a contested word of football. Um, so, yeah, government definitely has a huge role to play simply because most sports, whether it's in the UK, Australia, wherever it may be, uh, do still uh, generate a lot of government funding. And often that funding can be contingent on governance reform. So, again, in the Australian context, we've seen uh, the Australian Sports Commission, Sport Australia, introduced rules that said that every single national sport body, body had to have 40% women by this date. And if you didn't have that on your board, you're going to get your funding cut off. And lo and behold, all of a sudden, all the national sport organisations managed to find women to sit on their boards pretty quickly uh, because their funding became tied to those requirements. So government definitely plays a really big role in terms of producing the stick that can help change in sport organisations. Right, mate. Do you, I mean, what about the possibility of the NRL investing in in the game here? Um, obviously, at the moment, it's an unwieldy structure, and the NRL 
uh, probably are scared off getting involved because they don't understand it. It's too, um, you know, it's too complicated. Um, but equally, you can't expect the UK to give taxpayers money to a foreign-owned entity. So you, if the NRL owned the you could, you can't imagine the RFL, which is the governing body for the sport, mm. being more than 50% owned by a foreign body and still get government funding. Uh so, so how do you how do we negotiate um, that um, sort of um, maze um, so that we get a good outcome for the sport? Uh, well, I think the, I, I do have an answer to that, but before before I get to that answer, I'll just point out that I think the NRL's window to invest in anything probably closed when they decided to give grants of one hundred and thirty percent of the salary cap to clubs in the NRL who basically aren't financially viable by themselves. And I think that decision made the better part of what half a decade to a decade ago really crippled the ability to develop a future fund in the NRL that really could have been used more strategically for opportunities like this. So whether that opportunity exists fundamentally, I I have big question marks. Uh, But presuming it is possible for the NRL to put some money into the British game, which I think has some merit, um, I think the solution to, to your challenge here is that you probably need to separate the RFL being the national governing body of rugby league, uh, which is in charge of participation, junior development, national teams. And that would still remain a not-for-profit organisation that would then get funding from the government, uh, whereas your Super League would would be a separate commercial entity, which would be, I guess, to some extent owned by the NRL in the same way, the same way that the English Premier League is separate from the FA, right? So you separate your commercial league from your national sport org, much like it is, I guess, already. And that way you can get around the private ownership issue relative to government funding issue. Right, right. Okay. What, what do you think um, um, the, the state of rugby league is at the moment, you know, given all, the, you know, all that's happened, I guess the stuff, the stuff that's happened in the last few days, as far as players breaching biosecurity and um, you know the the, the 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 issues that we've got with you've, you've pointed out with uh, governance and um, you know um, where, where is it placed? Do you think in, in in Australia is it is it and and you did mention in a, in a message to me before you kindly offered to come on that um, you know the, the situation with um, rights negotiations at the moment and, and I get people who say to me that the NRL is, is very strongly placed in, in, as far as rights are concerned um, and that the future's bright. And I get people saying that they're terribly placed and that they, that, that, from a bargaining position, they're, they're almost neutered. Um, yeah. what, 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 is a, what, is a, what is the truth and why? This is one of the really interesting, um, this is one of the really interesting dynamics in the Australian sport marketplace uh, which I, I discuss in my book being focused on, I guess, not just one code, but looking at rugby league versus union versus soccer versus AFL in our country. What's really interesting, if we think of these four tribes of football, you know, AFL and soccer are probably the most confident tribes in terms of backing their own sports and being quite passionately, outwardly vocal about, about praising their sports. Whereas uh, rugby, rugby league suffers from a little element of... Um, I guess, a lack of confidence in terms of uh, really backing backing the sport. And I think that reflects what you say, where some people think, you know, it's at the edge of oblivion and other people think it's going fantastically. You know, when, when I look at the research around consumer rates and fandom and media rates of the four codes in, Australia, in the Australian context, you know, it's really interesting that 
a lot of research suggests that the NRL has a similar amount of fans, the AFL. Uh, there's only about a, a 1 million person difference, about 8 million to 7 million, which is a crazy small difference when you consider that the AFL has a million fan, a million members, they're averaging you know, 35,000 people per game pre-COVID. And so a lot of a lot of the hard metrics suggest that rugby league is not really necessarily as strong as we'd like it to be. But then there seems to be these fans that exist and we see them come through in television ratings. In respect to the strength of rugby league in Australia, I think it is a challenging question because at the end of the day, rugby league is probably the most reliant on broadcast revenue. So historically, they've, central revenue has been as high as 67% focused on broadcast revenue. It's still at about 60% of all revenue. So as a business model, rugby league relies so heavily on broadcast rights because it doesn't quite have that same support in terms of membership and attendances. So in, in that sense, they're very vulnerable to, I guess, a bad broadcast rights deal. And the, the challenge that rugby league is going to have is that they're heading into a free-to-air negotiation cycle where blowout score lines are starting to affect television ratings to some degree, not as strong a degree as people worry about. But there are some sort of headwind challenges that they're facing. Television ratings in Brisbane are absolutely flopping to record low levels because of the poor performance of every Queensland team. So there are some sort of operational challenges in place. But fundamentally, and this is probably a big distinction to the UK market, is rugby league is so culturally embedded in the Australian marketplace in the northeast of Australia, where a lot of the media revenue sits that it's hard, to imagine it, uh, it's hard to imagine it going backwards in broadcast rights simply because it's so culturally embedded where the big populations are, again, which is a distinction from the UK market. Right, right. So are they in a good position where, you know, Channel 10 are interested in, in, in the rights and therefore that's going to drive up the bidding or are they, are they not? What do, what do you think? Well, it's... It's hard to say definitively. What's interesting with Rugby Union is that they've publicly uh, stated that they have an intention to make football, soccer, the number one football code in Australia. Now, that's very difficult to imagine um, because there is, there's no, while there's no shortage of football fans in this country, obviously a very high participation sport, the reality is that as people become bigger fans of football in Australia, they become bigger fans of the English Premier League. Um, in the Bundesliga. So whereas, you know, once you're a rugby league fan, you're going to support the NRL. Once you're a soccer fan in Australia, you're half those people are migrating offshore and, and half at most are staying domestic in terms of A-League support. So it's hard to imagine, you know, it's hard to imagine the A-League ever all of a sudden competing against the NRL or AFL. But having said that, you know, historically we've, we've seen that it's very hard for a broadcaster to have more than one football code. When, um, when it happened on... Which one was it? When, uh, when I think it was Channel 9 had both the AFL and NRL rights and they were trying to juggle the two. It just didn't quite work for them economically and didn't quite work for either code. No. So the challenge for each of the football codes now is that our three major broadcasters have basically pegged their wagon to one particular football code. And it's going to be very hard to ever imagine those seats swapping. You know, 10's probably got a long-term future now with A-League. That's probably them capped out. You know, Seven has been very interested in AFL for a long time. And again, nine with NRL. So it's kind of like we're playing, um, it's like we're playing, you know, musical chairs and we've all sat down and the seats we've landed in probably reflect us, the seats that the football codes are going to stay in. Mm. And that's probably going to, in some ways, diminish the competitive tension in the market. So when NRL next comes up, it's probably less likely we're going to see Channel 10 or Channel 7 bidding 
because you know each each code is basically hitched their wagon. Each broadcaster hitched their wagon to a code. Yeah, yeah. Hunter, um, tell us about your book. Um, um, you mentioned that. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the book, and I'm looking forward to your book coming out too, so we can have a bit of a, a book swap. Um, my book uh, is based on uh, my 10 years as an academic researcher on football and, and my commercial background uh, in sort of sport consultancy. Uh, it's called Code Wars, the Battle for Fans, Dollars and Survival. And really it tries to uh, take a more um, educated analysis of the sport uh, landscape you know, as you know, Steve, a lot of a lot of journalists will typically stay within their preferred sport, and we've seen great books produced. You know, Joe Gorman's written great soccer books. Uh, there have been great, plenty of great books on AFL, bordering bordering upon propaganda books, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> um, and you know, we see the occasional rugby union book and, and slightly less rugby league books. I think reflecting probably the audience. So where my book's a little bit different is that I try to sort of focus on the intertwined history of the four codes together and kind of look at the landscape collectively. And, you know, there's lots of incredible moments in time that we just don't really appreciate because we're very focused on the present. Uh, a lot of people wouldn't realise that if it wasn't for the timing of World War I, uh, the AFL and the NRL were literally going to merge to form one hybrid sport in 1915. And um, I spend a chapter in the book talking about that because for me it's just incredible to think that our two most popular, humongous, media-dominant sports could have merged into one even bigger um, hybrid sport. So, um, yeah, so it really tries to look at that sort of combined history of all the codes and tries to give a relatively impartial analysis of the landscape. Where can people uh, buy the book, Hannah? The book can be purchased from my publisher, which is Fair Play Publishing. Uh, it can be on Amazon, uh, Angus and Roberts and uh, Dimix and all good bookstores. And I will put some links in the notes on uh, YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, I'll put some links down Legend. there. So make sure you go and uh, pick, pick up a copy of Code Wars by Hunter Fujak. Hunter, thanks for joining us. We could talk forever. I hope we get the chance to do this a few times again in future because there's a lot more uh, things we could, could have discussed, but we'll be here all day. Sounds great. 